Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 11th of February, year of our Lord, 2021. And I want to do some extra content. Plus, with the weather I'm getting right now, I don't even know if I'll have power this weekend. We we have a quarter of inch of ice right now, and it's still falling. And then we're going to get like eight inches of snow. So definitely got some winter going on. Got the wood stove cooking. And I thought, you know, there's two things that I saw over the last couple of days that I really wanted to put out. I was going to recover that Time article because it's just hot garbage. And Ben Shapiro did an incredible segment on it. So we're going to listen to Ben Shapiro's breakdown. This is like some homework for the next podcast. And then discuss. And then we're going to do a Tucker Carlson about the riots. Very interesting because I knew none of this. So let's listen to the Honorable Ben Shapiro podcast, episode 1190, and his take on the Times article. few quick notes to begin about last night's Super Bowl. So it is the only NFL game I have watched this season because of all the wokeness. And I will say it was kind of astonishing how missing in action the wokeness was at the Super Bowl, which makes sense because the NFL is not stupid enough to try and cram that down the throats of 100 million Americans during their biggest broadcast of the year and the biggest event in American entertainment. And so it was the usual stuff. It was patriotism and unity and togetherness and all of the rest. That's not to say that it didn't have its bizarre moments like the halftime show, but it was uh, it was not a good game. But Tom Brady demonstrates once again that he is the greatest quarterback of all time at 10 Super Bowls. He is seven and three in those Super Bowls. And you just have to you just have to admire the quality. I mean, you really do. And you have to admire the quality, by the way, of defenses uh, of Tampa Bay's defensive scheme. And they really stymied Patrick Mahomes. But that's enough sports talk. We'll get to the cultural side of this. I will say that the halftime show was super weird. Um, I, I know that it's not aimed at me. I know that when people think of like chief demographic for the weekend, they don't think of me because I listen to classical music and read straight the lyrics of Cardi B. But with that said, I thought that even for a weird halftime show, this one was super duper weird. Uh, I think my favorite part, there, there were a couple parts that are pretty great. One was when he was the weekend, which I assume was his given name. Like he, he was born, his mother looked at him and called him the weekend. But in any case, I assume that um, you know, he was he was stumbling through the, the mirrored halls with a camera up in his face. So that was like me after a second COVID shot right there. And then uh, I don't know if this was meant to be like Joe Biden's COVID, COVID troops masked coming for you if you don't wear a mask or what, what this was supposed to be. But the uh, the creepy red coated fascist marchers with no faces coming at you in the night was uh, that was a vision. So that's I, I, also he should pay some royalties to Michael Jackson. This is just the thriller video, isn't it? So he had him doing a little bit of uh, of Michael Jackson 
dancing, and then we have uh, like the thriller video here. Now we have the uh, the COVID fascist troops coming for you. So that's a, that's exciting stuff. It was weird. It was weird. And also, um, th- isn't this Bruno Mars' song? No, different song. Okay, so that's that. Yeah, that's not Bruno Mars. That's that's the weekend. Okay, so in any case, um, that was one sort of weird highlight of the show. But when it came to the commercials, the commercial that everyone is talking about this morning, the commercial that's got everybody hot and bothered is this commercial narrated by Bruce Springsteen for Jeep. Okay, so there's always one of these commercials during the Super Bowl where some major company is like, wouldn't it be great if America got together? A few years back during the recession, Clint Eastwood did one uh, from one of the car companies. I'm trying to remember which car company, which shows you how successful the ad was in retrospect. But Jeep had this ad with Bruce Springsteen narrating. And when I think of people who represent middle America, I think of the guy from New Jersey with the earring who votes Democrat all the time. Quintessential Americans, I think of of like people who represent the the middle of America, the partisan middle of America. I tend to think of Bruce Springsteen. And and he puts on a cowboy hat, which like that makes him the, the second most awkward person to have put on a cowboy hat. I would be number one on that list after our company moved to Tennessee. In any case, here was the here was the ad for Jeep. And a lot of people in the media were just in love with this. Brian Stelter was like, I wish this could have gone on for an hour, an hour. Oh, no, you, you don't. Because the ad is super boring and it says nothing. And it just demonstrates sort of where we are politically is that this sort of pap is now popular with the left specifically because the ad says nothing. It says that we are all supposed to be reunited. The idea here is that Donald Trump is gone, of course, and therefore we can all reunite around shared values like churches that the left wants to invade and revoke its nonprofit status. And also dirt, apparently. Here's the ad. There's a chapel in Kansas standing on the exact center of the lower 48. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately. Between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear, we need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground. To the reunited States of America. And it sounds like super nice and bland and, uh, and meaningless. Like li- literally completely meaningless. There, there's nothing there. Uh, my, I do like when he, he likes dirt. That, that, that is one of my favorite parts. I don't know if that's the dirt that Beto O'Rourke ate after he lost his head cruise or, or like the very soil we stand on is common ground. Okay, well, Yes, the entire earth, in fact, is made out of generally the same materials. And so we therefore have common ground with like all the people like us and and Yemen, common ground because we're on a planet together. So that's that's exciting stuff. Also, a lot of shots of churches there and uh, the Equality Act, not very much in favor of uh, the churches. So this but this is the new unity, right? The new unity is get on board. We're unified. We're moving forward together. And oh, by the way. If you disagree with us, you're not part of the unity. You're not part of the unity. That's the subtext there. Because when you think of unifying political figures, Bruce Springsteen, who's a partisan Democrat, has performed at like every DNC since 1873. Th- th- that guy is is not a unifying figure in any way, shape, or form. And so I, I, calls for unity that actually have content, like why don't we recommit to our local communities and helping one? Like that would be nice. But that's not what that's about, right? It's the reunited States of America because Trump tore us apart. And now, now we can be reunited. Nobody mentioned that Trump won Kansas. Like, don't don't tell him. Don't tell him. Okay. In any case, all of this is part of a of a broader manipulation that is currently happening in the United States, in which we are all supposed to have bought into the new golden age, the post partisan age of unity, ushered in 
by Joe Biden's administration. And it's going to be great, guys. It's going to be great. And in fact, we should celebrate the, the accession of Joe Biden to the presidency. And we should celebrate everybody who helped make that happen, including people who sort of manipulated the system. Now, note what I am not going to contend here. I'm not going to contend that voter fraud and voter irregularity decided the election. I don't think they did. I did not make that contention since literally day one. I said that I did not think it was true. I did not think there was evidence to back it and the evidence was not brought. However, I did say since day one that there are systems of power in this in this country, institutions of power controlled by the left at the top level. And those were, in fact, manipulated in order to rig the body politic in favor of particular points of view. And this can happen when you have an entire mainstream establishment media on one side of the political aisle. This can happen when, for example, you black out an entire late breaking story on the president's son and his relationship with foreign powers and what the president knew about that and when as did happen with all of social media to the New York Post story. This can happen when you have the social media giants cracking down on people with dissenting points of view and downgrading traffic to particular websites that do not reflect that point of view. If you have the institutions of power in the United States all controlled by one side of the political aisle and those institutions of powers kick into gear, that is going to have an effect on the election, obviously. You don't have to expressly suggest that people had their votes switched or their votes stolen in order to point out that when you have institutions of power that have a heavy impact on how people live and how people think and how people consume information, and that that certainly can have an impact on how an election goes. And this is not a theory. Okay, Molly Ball over at Time Magazine has a piece that the left is celebrating, but really should scare the living hell out of everybody. Molly Ball, who is on the left, short a piece for Time. It's called The Secret History of the Shadow Campaign That Saved the 2020 Election. This is one of my favorite things that is happening in the media right now. And when I say favorite, I mean least favorite. You have members of the media who are openly acknowledging that Blue America has taken control of the levers of power in every major institution and are wielding those levers of power against you right, in order to manipulate you, in order to change your life. And then if you say, hey, wait a second, all of these institutions seem like they're controlled by the left and they're being wielded against me. Then the same media will say, you're paranoid. You're paranoid. It's not happening to you. We have Jim, Jim Vandehey from Axios literally writing that Blue America is in control of every major institution in the United States, from Hollywood to sports to corporate America to social media to government, and that they are using that power in order to rethink how freedom of speech is done. And then when people like me say that on the show, then Axios reports Hey, look at these right wingers. This is their new narrative. It's not my narrative, dude. It's your narrative. You literally wrote that narrative because you happen to be telling the truth about this. We're going to get to what Time Magazine said actually happened during election 2020. Because again, the the institutional obstacles to open debate in the United States are massive and they are becoming ingrained and it's extraordinarily dangerous. You're being manipulated. You're being manipulated. And the left is sometimes openly admitting they are manipulating you. We'll get to this in just one second. First election. Nothing. The nation was braced for chaos. Liberal groups had vowed to take to the streets, planning hundreds of protests across the country. Right-wing militias were girding for battle. In a poll before Election Day, 75% of Americans voiced concern about violence. Then, an eerie quiet descended. As President Trump refused to concede, the response was not mass action, but crickets. When media organizations called the race for Joe Biden on November 7th, jubilation broke out instead as people thronged cities across the United States to celebrate the democratic process that resulted in Trump's ouster. A second odd thing happened amid Trump's attempts to reverse the result. Corporate America turned on him. Hundreds of major business leaders, many of whom had backed Trump's candidacy and supported his policies, called on him to concede. To the president, something felt amiss. It was all very, very strange, Trump said on December 2nd. Within days after the election, we witnessed an orchestrated effort to anoint the winner, even while many key states were still being counted. In a way, says Molly Ball in Time magazine, Trump was right. There was a conspiracy unfolding behind the scenes, one that both curtailed the protests and coordinated the resistance from CEOs. 
Both surprises were the result of an informal alliance between left-wing activists and business titans. The pact was formalized in a terse, little-noticed joint statement of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and AFL-CIO published on Election Day. Both sides would come to see it as some sort of implicit bargain, inspired by the summer's massive, sometimes destructive racial justice protests, in which the forces of labor came together with the forces of capital to keep the peace and oppose Trump's assault on democracy. So she's talking about the post-election period there. But then she says, ah, yeah, there's the pre-election period too, right? And here's what she says, Molly Ball. The handshake between business and labor was just one component of a vast cross-partisan campaign to protect the election, an extraordinary shadow effort dedicated not to winning the vote, but to ensuring it would be free and fair, credible and uncorrupted. For more than a year, a loosely organized coalition of operatives scrambled to shore up America's institutions as they came under simultaneous attack from a remorseless panic and an autocratically inclined president. So the way that Molly Ball is pitching this is that all of these left-wing institutions, they, they threw themselves into high gear in order to ensure free and fair and wonderful and clean elections. And wow, what an amazing job they did. And the result of that amazing job is Joe Biden as president. Now, to somebody who's not on the left, What that actually looks like is, hey, look at all these institutions of power that kicked into high gear in order to sometimes suppress opinion, in order to downgrade particular informational dissemination, in order to change the rules of voting. So they had universal mail-in voting five months early in many of these states before much of the information for the election was actually relevant or available. But remember, Molly Balls of the Left, so this is a celebratory article, right? She says, Though much of the activity took place on the left, it was separate from the Biden campaign and crossed ideological lines with crucial contributions by nonpartisan and conservative actors. The scenario the shadow campaigners were desperate to stop was not a Trump victory. It was an election so calamitous, no result could be discerned at all. Well, actually, it it was kind of more like the Trump victory. These people, generally speaking, were pretty concerned with the outcome of the vote, not merely the mechanisms of the vote. That is a, a lot of revisionist history right there. Says Molly Ball, their work touched every aspect of the election. They got states to change voting systems and laws and helped secure hundreds of millions in public and private funding. They fended off voter suppression lawsuits. Okay, voter suppression lawsuits are also things like voter ID and lawsuits that challenge whether votes should be cast in a particular way. Things like vote gathering, right? ballot harvesting. They recruited armies of poll workers and got millions of people to vote by mail for the first time. That's just called voter turnout, right? That's a political campaign. They successfully pressured, here's the part that's great. They successfully pressured social media companies to take a harder line against disinformation and used data-driven strategies to fight viral smears. Oh, you mean they they rigged the levers of informational dissemination in the United States so that they would be the sole arbiters of what information should actually be spread during the election. Sounds on the up and up. They executed national public awareness campaigns that helped Americans understand how the vote count would unfold over days and weeks. After Election Day, they monitored every pressure point to ensure Trump could not overturn the election. So here, what exactly does that mean? So Molly Ball says, the participants want the secret history of the 2020 election told, even though it sounds like a paranoid fever dream, a well-funded cabal of powerful people ranging across industries and ideologies, working together behind the scenes to influence perceptions, change rules and laws, steer media coverage and control the flow of information. They were not rigging the election. They were fortifying it. Oh, that's what was it. By the way, If Trump had won and they'd done all the exact same things, do you think Molly Ball would be writing about the fortified election? Or do you think she'd be writing about how corrupt the election was? So what kinds of stuff did they do in order to, quote unquote, fortify the election? Fortify the election? So Molly Ball writing in Time magazine. And she talks about how all of these groups basically got together in order to, quote unquote, fortify the election. So what exactly did that fortification look like? Well, it looked like an alliance between the AFL-CIO and the Chamber of Congress, uh, Chamber of Commerce, 
And the head, one of the heads of these unions was a guy named Mike Podhorzer. Hey, he was the senior advisor to the president of the AFL-CIO. He put together a memo and he started making connections with people. On March 3rd, Podhorzer drafted a three-page confidential memo titled Threats to the 2020 Election. Trump has made it clear this will not be a fair election, that he will reject anything but his own re-election as fake and rigged, he wrote. On November 3rd, should the media report otherwise, he will use the right-wing information system to establish his narrative and incite his supporters to protest. The, the memo laid out four categories of challenges, attacks on voters, attacks on election administration, attacks on his political opponents, and efforts to reverse the results of the election. So what did they do? They kicked into high gear for rapid mail-in voting. And by the way, they started, and this is the part that's, that's scarier to me, they started securing the methods of informational distribution. So according to Molly Ball at Time, bad actors spreading false information is nothing new. For decades, campaigns have grappled with everything from anonymous calls claiming the election has been rescheduled to flyers spreading nasty smears about candidates' families. But Trump's lies and conspiracy theories, the viral force of social media, and the involvement of foreign meddlers made disinformation a broader, deeper threat to the 2020 vote. Okay, so there's something you have to understand about the whole disinformation, misinformation nonsense that's been pushed by the left. Since 2016, the left has completely flipped on social media. So in 2012, social media was a godsend. Why? Because the Obama administration knew how to use it. They were micro-targeting people. They're using data in new and innovative ways. Then Trump used that same information in very similar ways in 2016. And the meme became the reason that Trump won in 2016 is because Facebook and Twitter and YouTube didn't shut off the mechanisms of informational distribution and misinformation had decided the election. How would we define misinformation? We define it as, quote, not not from the New York Times, not from CNN, not from MSNBC. Anything that comes from a partisan outlet on the right must be disinformation or misinformation. And this needs to be stopped. The spigot needs to be closed. So says Time Magazine, Laura Quinn, a veteran progressive operative who co-founded Catalyst, began studying this problem a few years ago. She piloted a nameless secret project, which she has never before publicly discussed, that tracked disinformation online and tried to figure out how to combat it. One component was tracking dangerous lies that might otherwise spread unnoticed. Researchers then provided information to campaigners or the media to track down the sources and expose them. Okay, so first of all, what that sounds like is that the media are just doing the work for progressive groups. She's a, she's a progressive operative. She runs Catalyst. Catalyst will send these media updates to members of the media who will then ram them into their fact checks the same way that Media Matters does. The most important takeaway from Quinn's research, says Time, was that engaging with toxic content only made it worse. When you get attacked, the instinct is to push back, call it out, say this isn't true. But the more engagement something gets, the more popular, the more the platforms boost it. The algorithm reads that as, oh, this is popular. People want more of it. Okay, so this is, this is where it gets good. So instead of countering the information, instead of somebody putting out something that you disagree with and you counter the information, which, by the way, you see all the time in the media. And by the way, half the time the media calls something false, it actually isn't false. I saw that last week when Snopes decided to fact check the idea that, that AOC was in the Capitol by admitting that she was not in the Capitol building, but saying that it was mostly false to say that she had exaggerated her count because she was not in the Capitol building. I mean, it was, an, it was an amazing fact check because the way the fact checkers typically work is that if conservatives say something false, they fact check it as false, which is correct. If the left says something false, they fact check it as mostly true. And if conservatives say something true, they fact check it as mostly false. That's the way these fact checkers often work. And they do it by biasing exactly what they're fact checking as we discussed last week. Okay, but here's the thing. What the left was pushing for was not more engagement, or even more of a boost to content that rebutted things they thought were not true. Instead, the solution, she concluded, was to pressure platforms to enforce their rules, both by removing content or, account or accounts that spread misinformation and by aggressively policing it in the first place. 
The platforms have certain policies against certain types of malign behavior, but they haven't been enforcing them, she says. Quinn's research gave ammo to advocates pushing social media platforms to take a harder line. In November 2019, Mark Zuckerberg invited nine civil rights leaders to dinner at his home, where they warned him about the danger of the election-related falsehoods that were already spreading unchecked. Here's the best part of this entire article. You ready? It took pushing, urging, conversations, brainstorming, all of that to get to a place where we ended up with more rigorous rules and enforcement, says Vanita Gupta, president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, who attended the dinner and also met with Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and others. It was a struggle, but we got to the point where they understood the problem. Was it enough? Probably not. Was it later than we wanted? Yes, but it was really important given the level of official disinformation that they had those rules in place and were tagging things and taking them down. So remember that I said the person who said that last quote is a person named Vanita Gupta, president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, who's saying we got the social media platforms to mirror our, our recommendations and start taking down content we didn't like. Gupta is Joe Biden's current nominee to associate attorney general. Does that sound a little corrupt to you? Little corrupt to you that people who are about to enter the Biden administration and were essentially part of the adjunct Biden campaign were bullying and pressuring social media companies into taking down and banning information they didn't like. Isn't that kind of a problem? Isn't that just a little bit of a problem? And so when you when people say that they feel like the election was not honest, that can take two forms. One is, oh, it was voter fraud. Oh, it was people cheated on the vote. Or it could be the reality, which is that. There are a lot of people who are pushing at the top levels from powerful positions in order to in order to pull every lever of influence they could, including ones that have an impact on you and have an impact on me daily. And that is they call it fortifying the election. Sounds a lot like rigging, does it not? I mean, rigging can be again for the third time. I was talking about voter fraud or voter irregularity when you pull every lever of power in order to achieve a particular result and you do it top down. Does that sound like respect for the American people? Or does that sound like you want to run the place? You are being manipulated. And the manipulation continues on a daily basis. This is not about unity. It's not about neutral principles that can be applied broadly across the spectrum. This is about creating a monopoly of informational distribution, a monopoly on who gets punished by the rules. The manipulation continues apace because the members of the media have an agenda. This is why when you when you see ads like the Bruce Springsteen ad from Jeep, when that's pretends that that's an apolitical ad. It's not an apolitical ad. The suggestion that we need reuniting after the age of Trump, as opposed to, you know, after during the age of Obama, when we actually did have race riots, when when we did have a an extraordinarily slow recovery, when we had incredible divisions in the body politic. Actually, look at the polls. When race relations in America started to go south was under Barack Obama. We didn't hear about how he was dividing America. He was a unifier. And then Trump came along and he was a divider. And now America is reuniting. And you know what unites us? Apparently, Churches in the middle of the country that the left doesn't particularly like, and also dirt. Those are the things that unify us. But the real answer is what unifies us is that you listen to the left. What unifies us, what's supposed to unify us, is that you agree with the precepts of the left. And here's the thing. This is directed at my friends who are liberal but not leftists. I make this distinction every single day on the program. There's a reason that we saw leftist tears tumblers, not liberal tears tumblers. I explicitly rejected liberal tears tumblers because... I think liberals are just people who disagree with me about politics. I think leftists are people who want to see everybody else banned in the search for an authoritarian unity. The left is ascendant. The left is moving, and they're moving in strong fashion in order to subject you, the citizen, to the curtailment of your rights so they can reach the sort of unity that they wish. Okay, and this is happening inside supposedly liberal institutions. I mean, this is an unbelievable story. 
Okay, over at the New York Times. So the New York Times is just getting purged right now. You remember the story about James Bennett, who is their op-ed editor. And you remember that they had an internal staff rebellion because he had the temerity to publish a column by Tom Cotton. You remember that? It was good times. Okay, well, now they've decided they're going to purge another person. This person's name is Donald McNeil Jr. Now, Donald McNeil Jr. is apparently a health reporter, and he has a long history of being an excellent reporter. He was nominated for a Pulitzer for his, for his COVID work. Now, he has resigned and apologized for his, quote-unquote, extraordinarily bad judgment over his use of the N-word after his Pulitzer Prize-winning colleague Nicole Hannah-Jones threatened to launch her own investigation of him because she is the de facto editor-in-chief of the New York Times now, this pseudo-journalistic, lying, fictionalized, anti-American. Nicole Hannah-Jones, like, she, she's, she's honestly, she, she's contempt. She's, she's a, a figure who deserves contempt. She deserves intellectual contempt. She's a person who has rejected any criticism of her own project as racist. She's gone back and self-edited her own project and changed the nature of the project. She, she has made accusations that are completely unfulfilled about a wide variety of journalists from, from liberal to conservative. Nicole Hannah-Jones is everything that is wrong with modern day American journalism. She, she's an activist opinion hack masquerading as something more, and she is not. And by the way, a lot of what she says is just plain wrong. It's just anti-factual. Okay, so here's what happened. In a letter to staff on Friday, Donald McNeil Jr. announced he was standing down from the paper after 45 years saying he, quote, originally thought the context in which I use this ugly word could be defended, but now realized it cannot. So it sounds like he had, you know, called someone the N-word, right? I mean, usually when you have a scandal and uh, you get fired for using the N-word, it's because you called somebody the N-word, right? That's not what happened here. That's not what happened here. Top bosses had previously said he should be given another chance, saying that McNeil had not used the word with malicious or hateful intent during the Times-sponsored school trip, but then changed tactics on Friday, telling staff, quote, we do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent. Do you know how insane that is, that standard? We don't tolerate racist language regardless of intent. Understand what is packed into that small phrase. Okay, normally, when you accuse somebody of being a racist, it's because they have racist thoughts, right? It's all about intent. Racism is all about intent. Because there are actions that can be interpreted a wide variety of ways. When a cop pulls over a black person for speeding, is that cop doing something racist? Or is the cop pulling somebody over for speeding who happens to be black? We don't know until we search the officer's intent, right? Until we know something about the officer. But according to the New York Times, racist words do not need to have intent attached to them. They are on their face racist. So we, we can disconnect racism from intent. Okay, what this really is, is the Ibram X. Kendi idea that what is truly racist is not intent. Racism has nothing to do with intent. You can be a racist without intent. What does it take to be a racist without intent? Not mirroring the priorities of Nicole Hannah-Jones. Once again, with the overall consensus from some conservatives, never Trumpers, the liberals in the media, that you can't talk about this election. And that if you question this election, you're seditionist and you need to be silenced, arrested, jailed, deprogrammed. You hear a story like this. And you realize the concerted effort that was made by the establishment, conservative, media, FBI, you name it, to make sure somebody doesn't win an election. And they call it fortifying, not rigging. And then you watch everything that's happened since then and how they've taken down Parler. They've banned people. I mean, in our next show, LifeSite News has been banned from YouTube.
Your humble podcaster was silenced on YouTube. If you think this is good for America, I'm really confused. I understand Trump was bad. I know you hated him. He was an evil person. But Trump was the outsider. Take away his brash, inappropriate, sometimes highly unpresidential conduct. He was an outsider. And if this is how the system is going to treat outsiders, and that the bullying that the left does on Twitter works in the real world, we know it does with companies. We have plenty of stories for Saturday or Sunday show of just outright and crazy bullying. But they bullied institutions to come on board and rig an election. That is not democracy. The simple fact is, we're supposed to be a country where the people speak. And they did in 2016, without Russian help, by the way, because that's all a lie. And then the establishment, including conservatives, set about removing that vote. Remember, they wanted to get rid of electoral Right now, he's done 52 executive orders. They're not using the filibuster. They're not even using legislation. They're going to get their states. They're going to get all illegals legal. And this party and cabal will run our country forever. That's their plan. People say, trust the republic. Yeah, the republic's gone. We just had an election that was rigged, including help from the USPS. I mean, I I go back to the election all the time, and I say the same thing. If Donald Trump would have changed 80 voting laws without legislation, my God in heaven, the same people that were part of that article who fortified the election would have talked about ripping of the Constitution, not letting the voters be heard, yada, yada, yada. That article is them gloating about rigging an election. And if you're good with that, you're not for free or fair elections. I know we'll never have a fair election with the media. A little tidbit from the next podcast. Every Republican, other than Gerald Ford, had impeachment. Every one of them. Impeachment was brought up. Including George W. Bush, Reagan, all of them. Trump's at seven now. And we'll cover it on our next. But it dovetails with this article... I didn't even research this stuff. So last night when Tucker Carlson talked about it, talk about being shocked. Building, some forced their way inside. And Washington has never been the same. It may never be the same. As a result of what happened on January 6th, your descendants will live in a very different country. It was a pivot point in our history looking back. Some in Congress have compared that day to 9-11. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has likened it to Pearl Harbor the day that spurred America's entry into the Second World War. 
Every day we hear new and more florid comparisons from Democratic partisans. But last night, CNN outdid all of them. Chernobyl? The Bhopal disaster? The Irish potato famine? No. What happened on January 6th was worse than any of that. It was, CNN told us, very much like the Rwandan genocide. The idea of otherizing people is something I think we saw a lot of over the last four years. I mean, it's something we've seen a lot over the last decades, but it's so easy to otherize people, to make people other than, other than American, other than patriotic, other than, than human, you know, and we've seen it in Bosnia, we've seen it in Rwanda, where radio was telling people that, you know, Hutus were telling the radio listeners that Tutsi were cockroaches, for, you know, to getting them ginned up for genocide. The Rwandan genocide, that's what it was like. Keep in mind that close to a million people were murdered in Rwanda in 1994. That's about 70% of all ethnic Tutsis in the country. Entire towns were hacked to death with machetes. They were set on fire, crushed alive by bulldozers. Hundreds of thousands of women were raped. It was among the most horrifying crimes in human history. How does a country recover from something like that, from a genocide? Well, first, obviously, you punish the guilty quickly and severely. In our case, you impeach him. But then, and this is more important, you set about reordering your society from top to bottom to make certain nothing like that ever happens again. So you purge the military. You suspend basic civil liberties. To emphasize the point, you send troops to the capital. You tear down the old. You destroy all vestiges of the past in order to save the future. That's what's going on now. But hold on. Before we remake America to prevent future genocide at the Capitol, maybe we should know a little bit more about the crime that occurred on January 6th, if only to understand the justification for overturning our lives permanently. What exactly did happen that day? Simple question. You may be surprised to learn how little we know even now. In fact, it's remarkable how many of the most basic questions remain unanswered more than a month after the fact. Let's start with the headline of the day. Five Americans died on the Capitol grounds on January 6th. You've heard that. You hear it incessantly, including from Republican office holders. Five dead. But that doesn't really tell you very much. It's the details, as always, that matter. Who were these people and how did they die? That's how you understand what actually happened. So with that in mind, here are the facts as of tonight. Four of the five who died that day were Trump supporters. The fifth was a Capitol Hill police officer who apparently also supported Donald Trump. Why is this relevant? Of course, the political views of the deceased shouldn't matter. But unfortunately, in this case, they do. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and many other elected Democrats claim the mob was coming for them that day. Yet the only recorded casualties on January 6th were people who voted for Donald Trump. The first among them was the 34-year-old woman from Georgia called Roseanne Boyland. Authorities first announced that Boylan died of a, quote, medical emergency. Later video footage suggested she may have accidentally been trampled by the crowd. We're still not sure. That's the best guess. The second casualty was 55-year-old Kevin Greeson. Greeson died of heart failure while talking to his wife on a cell phone outside the Capitol. Quote, Kevin had a history of high blood pressure, his wife later said, and in the midst of the excitement, he suffered a heart attack, end quote. The third was 50-year-old Benjamin Phillips of Ringtown, Pennsylvania. Phillips was a Trump supporter who organized a bus trip to Washington for the rally that day. He died of a stroke on the grounds of the Capitol. There is no evidence that Phillips rioted or was injured by rioters or even went inside the Capitol building. The fourth, fourth person to die, the only person to die that day of intentional violence, was 35-year-old Ashley Babbitt, a military veteran from San Diego. 
Babbitt was wearing a Trump cape when she was shot to death by a Capitol Hill police lieutenant. Babbitt's death was caught on video, so hers is the best documented death that took place that day. And yet it is surprising how little we know about it. Babbitt was shot as she tried to crawl through a broken window into the speaker's lobby within the Capitol. And that's essentially the extent of what we know. Authorities have refused to release the name of the man who shot her or divulge any details of the investigation they say they've done. We may never know exactly why this unnamed Capitol Hill police officer took her life. According to that officer's attorney, quote, there is no way to look at the evidence and think that he is anything but a hero. Of course, we can't actually look at that evidence because they're withholding it. We can't even know his identity. Killing an unarmed woman may be justified under certain specific circumstances. But since when is it, quote, heroic when the dead woman has read QAnon websites? Republicans aren't asking that question. One Republican member of Congress from Oklahoma says he immediately hugged the officer who shot Ashley Babbitt. You did what you had to do, the congressman said. But did the officer really have to do that? We don't know. It would be nice to know. Maybe someone could ask. We do know that Ashley Babbitt was not holding a weapon when she was killed. Nevertheless, at the impeachment hearing this week, Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island described what happened at the Capitol as, quote, an armed insurrection. Watch. He incited an armed, angry mob to riot. On inciting an armed insurrection against the United States government, an armed, angry, and dangerous crowd, armed violence against the government of the United States of America. David Cicilline is a former mafia lawyer from Providence, so presumably he knows what it is to commit a felony with a firearm. Doubtless he does. There are no reports of rioters at the Capitol building that day discharging weapons or threatening anyone with a gun. So what exactly is David Cicilline talking about? Well, apparently he's referring to the death of Officer Brian Sicknick. In the hours after the riot, the New York Times reported that Trump supporters had brutally beaten Officer Sicknick to death with a fire extinguisher. The fire extinguisher, apparently, is the deadly weapon, the armed in the armed insurrection. Now, the news of Sicknick's death by violence was quickly picked up by countless other media outlets. Cable television anchors repeated and then amplified it. Officer Brian Sicknick died after being hit in the head with a fire extinguisher during the hours-long attack. They beat a Capitol Police officer to death with a fire extinguisher. Officer Brian Sicknick died after being hit in the head with a fire extinguisher during the fight. He died at the age of 42 after he was bludgeoned with a fire extinguisher. Capitol Hill police officer beaten to death with a fire extinguisher by a white supremacist mob. It's horrifying. And that is the story they were telling. It's a story they still are telling. That account forms the basis of the myth that Democrats have constructed around January 6th. Sicknick's remains lay in state at the Capitol building. Streams of politicians, the very same people who just months before had told us that cops were racist by definition, those same people praised Brian Sicknick as a hero. They had finally found a police officer who served their political uses. Kamala Harris and her husband, for example, arrived to pay their respects, and as they did, they said not one thing about defunding the police. But in fact, the story they told was a lie from beginning to end. Officer Sicknick was not beaten to death, not with a fire extinguisher, not with anything else. According to an exhaustive and fascinating new analysis on Revolver News, there's no evidence that Brian Sicknick was hit with a fire extinguisher at any point during the day. None. No video. Nothing. The officer's body apparently bore no signs of trauma. In fact, on the night of January 6th, long after rioters at the Capitol had been arrested or dispersed, Brian Sicknick texted his brother from his office. 
According to his brother, Sicknick said he'd been, quote, pepper sprayed twice and he was in good shape. 24 hours later, Officer Brian Sicknick was dead. How did Officer Sicknick die? The head of the Capitol Police Union has said he had a stroke, no cause given. More than that, we still don't know. Sicknick's body was cremated immediately. Authorities have refused to release his autopsy. No one has been charged in his death. No charges are pending. Whatever happened to Brian Sicknick was tragic, obviously, but it was also very different from what they have told us. They have lied about how he died. They've lied about a lot. For example, how did this riot start? Was it a spontaneous event incited by a reckless president on his way out in a fit of vicious peak? That's one version of the story. Or was the riot long planned? Was it a conspiracy? That's another version of the story. Both cannot be true. This weekend, the former chief of the Capitol Hill Police, Stephen Sund, claimed in a letter to Nancy Pelosi that there was no intelligence suggesting that a riot might be imminent at the Capitol. Apparently, the Washington Post has better sources than Chief Sund does. Days after January 6th, the newspaper reported that it was well known that a group of Trump supporters was headed to the city to cause trouble. The FBI almost certainly knew this. The feds likely had paid informers in the ranks of protesters. One of the riders, we learned this yesterday, was a former FBI employee. Was he still on the FBI payroll? He wouldn't be the first. So if the authorities knew that violence might be coming to the Capitol, where was the necessary security? It wasn't there. In fact, the response of law enforcement on the scene that day is baffling the more deeply you look into it. In some publicly available videos, Capitol Hill police seem to be all but inviting rioters into the building. Here's one example. Not sure what it means, and we're not going to speculate. We do know for certain that the known facts of what happened on January 6th deviate in very important ways from the story they are now telling us, including the story they told us today in the impeachment hearings. And in many places, the known facts bear no resemblance to the story they're telling. They're just flat out lying. There's no question about that. The question is, why would they lie about this? For an answer, think back to last spring. Beginning of Memorial Day, BLM and their sponsors in corporate America completely changed this country. They changed this country more in five months than it had changed in the previous 50 years. How'd they do that? They used the sad death of a man called George Floyd to upend our society. Months later, we learned that the story they told us about George Floyd's death was an utter lie. There was no physical evidence that George Floyd was murdered by a cop. The autopsy showed that George Floyd almost certainly died of a drug overdose, fentanyl. But by that point, facts didn't matter. It was too late. Cities had been destroyed along with the fabric of this country itself. Scores of people had been killed. Democratic partisans used a carefully concocted myth, a lie, to bum rush America into overturning the old order and handing them much more power. It worked flawlessly. So why wouldn't they do it again? Joining us from Los Angeles is a man who watched all of this happen, the radio show host and all-around great observer and analyst and man, Larry Elder. Larry, great to see you tonight. So it, Thank you it's, so much for having it, me, Tucker. I appreciate it. It's hard not to feel, and I'm not alleging conspiracy because it's happening in plain sight, but it's hard not to feel like a historic event, January 6th, which no person would ever defend, is being used by political partisans to gather more power to themselves, and the rest of us are letting it happen. 
Well, Tucker, everything you said about needing more facts, of course, is rational, it's reasonable, and it is completely irrelevant because Donald Trump has been impeached twice and is now standing his second impeachment trial for the unpardonable capital offense, capital felony of being Donald Trump. The left thinks Donald Trump himself is a crime scene. Look at some of the characters involved in this play. Maxine Waters. Uh, everybody knows Maxine Waters urged supporters to threaten uh, Donald Trump cabinet members. She said, push back on them, surround them, form a crowd, let them know they're not welcome anywhere anymore. Forget about that. This is a woman who wrote a letter to Fidel Castro when Congress passed a resolution urging Castro to send back to America a woman who had murdered a New Jersey trooper, broke out of prison, and fled to Cuba. Maxine Waters writes Castro a letter, likens her to a freedom fighter, she's a former Black Panther, and says that the only reason she was prosecuted is because she had been persecuted for political beliefs and urged Castro to keep this woman. She remains there as we speak. Chuck Schumer, of course, is going to vote to convict uh, President Trump. Chuck Schumer has often played the race card when asked whether or not Donald Trump is a racist. He said, well, he has said racist things. 1974. A young, upcoming, ambitious politician named Chuck Schumer met with some racist neighbors in an area in New York called Flatbush. There were two buildings, Tucker. They had black tenants. They weren't causing any problems. They weren't committing any crimes. But these racist neighbors wanted them out. The young Schumer met with the neighbors, and he said, look, here's what I'll do. Vote for me, and I'll introduce a measure to renovate these buildings. Uh, they'll have a right of first refusal, of course, but we'll make them so nice they won't be able to afford to come back. And voila, he introduced the scheme to do that. Unfortunately for Schumer and the racist neighbors, the blacks were able to come up with the money to move back into digs that were nicer than the digs they left, but not for want of trying. Now, the man who was attending this meeting is named Jay Homnick. He's a writer, Tucker, for American Spectator. He wrote about this in 2006. I've interviewed him several times over the years on my radio show. And I've asked him, has anybody from the New York Times, Washington Post asked you about this? He said, no, the media are completely uninterested in this racist scheme to purge a New York neighborhood uh, in 1974 of black people. Now, 1974 is a long time ago. I'll give you that. But that's the same time that Donald Trump, a young Donald Trump, entered into a consent decree with the FHA to discontinue practices that the FHA felt were discriminatory against would-be black and brown renters. And that is often cited as a reason for Donald Trump's alleged racism. Around the same time, Chuck Schumer introduced this racist scheme to purge a New York neighborhood of black people and nobody gives a damn. This is the kind of double standard that we've been up against for years, and I am sick of it. I am sick of it. These characters involved in getting rid of Donald Trump, impeaching him, and now convicting him have done horrific things, and the media could not care less. Who writes a letter to Castro? Who in 1974 introduces a plan to get rid of black people? Who does that? Media indifferent. Hard to take a moral lecture from these people. I completely agree. They win because they scream louder. They're more it aggressive. That's totally true. Larry Elders, great to see you tonight. Thank you for that. It is. If you're hearing thumping, I should do my Jim Cantore right now because we have snow thunder. That's right. You don't hear that a lot. Snow thunder. That, that was shocking to me. And here's the reason why it's shocking. Because once again, for a political agenda and to assist the Democrats to find a way to block Trump from ever running to be president again, because that's all they could ever hope for. That's why Nancy Pelosi held the articles of impeachment. The media lied. We keep hearing armed insurrection. 
There wasn't an armed insurrection. Nobody was armed. Five people died. Four of them died of natural causes. They don't even know how the officer died. He was not hit at all with a fire extinguisher. He texted his brother that he was okay. And we would never know that, but Revolver, okay, did articles. And they went and freaking did a research what really happened because the media was going with one storyline that all this happened and it wasn't true. And then you get into it. Let me see if I can find it now. Um, Brian, here we go. Let me just go ahead and pull these up and we'll go with this now. And we'll repeat it on the weekend. I wasn't planning on doing it. Okay. So, um, to the comparisons. Now, once again, I'm not belittling what happened at the Capitol. What happened at the Capitol was wrong. Not saying it wasn't wrong. I'm saying, once again, it's not like everything else from Russia to everything with Trump. It's never true. It's an embellishment. It's that 10% of truth. And for some of you, my last podcast, jabbing back at somebody, it might have seemed petty. But I truly believe that. 10% of truth in everything you say. Even when you're joking, you have 10% of truth. You're trying to make a point to somebody. So, to compare the Capitol to 9-11, to compare the Capitol to Pearl Harbor, 2,000 police officers were hurt this summer. 2,000. It's from policemag.com. That came from the Police Chief Association releases number of officers injured during the violent riots. More than 2,000 law enforcement officers were injured during the protests, and 36 were murdered. In there, during the period, there were 8,700 protests nationwide. 574 were declared riots with violence. Eh, you shut your mouth. I don't want to listen to you. Sorry, you know how web pages open nowadays. They got rid of pop-ups. But now they... Oh, you're killing me. Hold on a second. Let me find out which one is talking still. Okay, we're just going to do this now because this is just turning into a shit show. Um, <clears throat> they made these all peaceful. I won't do the peaceful protester again because we don't have to. We've seen it. But 575, 774 were declared riots with violence and other criminal acts. The violence was limited to 7% of the top protest, they say. But within those, 2,000 cops were injured, 36 were murdered. But the capital's Pearl Harbor. It's fucking Pearl Harbor. You remember that. And if you don't think it's Pearl Harbor, you're a piece of shit. The Guardian is the only fucking agency I can find that even tried to find out how many people died. And they go, at least 25 Americans were killed. But there is no quantitative number 
to show how many people were killed. Because just like H1N1, we didn't track the deaths because it was Obama. Same thing. We didn't blame Obama for the 61 million people that got H1N1, and we shouldn't have. But this riot has become this entity that conservatives, the FBI, the media are using to label 74 million people who don't agree with them politically as seditionists. You go to heavy. Here's the Cisnik. Was a Trump-supporting U.S. Capitol Police officer and military veteran who died of injuries suffered during a pro-Trump riot on January 6th. Sicknick was injured while physically engaging with rioters, the U.S. Capitol Police Department said in a statement. He died at 9.30. There is a graphic video circulating that some believe shows a mom beating Officer Sicknick. However, the video turned out to not be him. An Arkansas man named Peter Stager now stands accused by authorities of being the man beating an other officer. Heavy found on Twitter... A Twitter account with Sisnick's name. It indicates that he was a Donald Trump supporter. He covered photos of Trump playing. The account has been temporarily restricted for unusual activity. On Facebook, it's covered photos of American flag. The mayor of South River, New Jersey, where the officer was from, told My Central News Jersey the family has requested privacy at this time and said Brian did his job. Reuters interviewed Sisnick's father, who gave more details of what happened to his son. A rioter overpowered Capitol Police. Sicknick was pepper sprayed and hit in the head, his father said. Ambulance crews resuscitated him twice. As he was rushed to a nearby hospital, Sisnick died the next day. He ended up with a clot in the brain. If they had operated on him, he would have, he would have been, become a vegetable. That's the story. But then there's the other one that says that he talked to his brother that night, and he was fine. Mega blood libel. This is a revolver. I already signed up for it. Who, why are they hiding the medical report? Last week, CNN was tactfully baffled by a simple question that grew stronger by the day. Why are investigators struggling to build a murder case in the case of Officer Sicknick? The stakes were high. Sicknick's death is the only purported death by a largely tourist crowd that was let into the building by police, stayed inside the velvet rope, seemed at least partly there out of confusion for social media clout or just for the memes, and that even the New York Times conceded caused limited property damage. That's a far cry from murder, yet Mega's being blood libeled with a felony murder charge in the court of public opinion and at Donald Trump's impeachment while potentially exculpatory evidence is silenced or sealed. As the Washington Uniparty mulls domestic terror laws over Mega bloodbath, it increasingly looks like Mega may have been bloodbath. Time is of the essence for the feds to release all the evidence, damn the guilty, or f- to clear the Mega movement of their serious allegation. Narrative one, the brazen lie. The day after Sisnick reported death, depraved toilet paper company and full-time libel factory, New York Times, Jumbotron, a massive howler headline, later confirmed to be a Judith Miller-level dirty lie. He dreamed of being a police officer, then was killed by a pro-Trump mob. Narrative 1.0 absolutely saturated the airwaves, editorials, and social media. Every MSM outlet from USA Today to New York Post to Daily Dot repeated that Sicknick was bludgeoned by a fire extinguisher. Not, sources say, not, 
many believe, just a total unqualified, unequivocal statement of fact. It, in an unforgivable shocker, the House trial memorandum himself, which sets forth the very impeachment charges for which the 45th president stands accused, names Trump liable for insurrectionists that killed a Capitol police officer by striking him in the head with a fire extinguisher. Their source, the New York Times. This is this is the Trump era. Remember, Nancy Pelosi went on the podium and says, you float it to the media, the media reports it, and then it becomes something that the the FBI can search. That's exactly how they did the Russia thing. They floated it, the New York Times did an article, that became the source of all the subpoenas. Not actual facts. Propaganda. But the Toilet Paper Times looked a real stinker inside this one because every claim they made, every detail conveyed was a lie. Then on Wednesday, pro-Trump rioters attacked the Citadel of Democracy, overpowered Sicknick 42, and struck him in the head with a fire extinguisher, according to two law enforcement officials. With a bloody glass in his head, Mr. Sicknick was rushed to the hospital and placed on life support. He died on Thursday evening. Law enforcement officials now tell CNN that there was no fire extinguisher blow, no bloody gash, and no blunt force trauma to Sicknick's body when he died. Not only that, but it is increasingly unclear when, where, and if Sistick was even rushed to the hospital. As it turns out, multiple hours after the protest had already concluded, Sistick texted his own brother, Ken, that very night he was basically fine, said he was basically fine other than being pepper sprayed twice, confirming he was safe and in good shape. Then an odd thing happened. The next afternoon, the Sistick family began getting phone calls that Officer Sistick was being declared dead. The phone calls didn't come from the hospital, they didn't come from the treating physicians, they didn't come from the U.S. Capitol Police or the FBI or the DOJ. They came from the media. Certain privileged media personnel were evidently the first to receive sensitive information circulating about a law enforcement official that Brian Sistick was dead. But when the story got stranger in a dark twist echo of Monty Python, bring out your dead scene, it turned out Sistick was not dead yet. As apparently premature news of Sisney's death spread in the law enforcement circle, the U.S. Capitol Police Department remained silent, including no response to any early requests for confirmation from ProPublica on Thursday evening. The family learned from a reporter phone call that something was wrong. We have gotten many calls, Ken Sisney said when he first contacted. Brian Sisney was the younger of the three siblings, all boy. We're kind of overwhelmed right now. You guys are getting reports of his death before I even got anything. Nearly an hour later, the department issued a statement rebutting news report that an officer had died. The department finally reported that Sistink had died at 9.30 p.m. Thursday, adding that this was a result of injuries sustained during the attack the previous day. By the time the family members reached the hospital, they said Sistink was dead. The U.S. Capitol Police responded in a public statement late that Thursday evening that swirling media reports were untrue. Sistink was still alive. Craig Kaplan, U.S. Capitol Police spokesman, media reports regarding the death of United States Capitol Police officers are not accurate. Although some officers were injured and hospitalized yesterday, nobody has passed away. One hour later, as Sistick's family rushed to the hospital to see what they believed was their beloved Brian still fighting for his life, the U.S. Capitol Police issued a further statement now. Sistick was dead. So in the rush to get a political clout, the media assisted, and this is the saddest thing about it. This guy was used as a pawn in their sick game to blame everybody for the, ra- the riot that happened for a few hundred people. The family wasn't even notified. (sighs) 
But the U.S. Capitol Police statement that night told a different story and returned to his office of the police division first. Sometime between Sistick being fine, healthy, and back in the office on Wednesday night and dead an effective dead on early Thursday evening, Sistick apparently suffered a stroke. The consequence, uh, the sequence of when and how that happened should be the easiest part of the story to put to bed, and yet we are being told to take this on faith, or as the media like to say, without evidence. Then the story gets even odder. Acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen says the DOJ will spare no resources in getting to the bottom what happened to him. Yet well over a month after his death, precisely zero information has been disclosed by the DOJ, the FBI, the the U.S. Capitol Police, the D.C. Medical Examiner, the hospital that cared for him, or the treating physician. One full month after Sisnick's death, no autopsy has been released. This is just like Floyd. The autopsy was released, and they came up with a fake autopsy so that that piece-of-shit Antifon member, member, who's the AG of Minnesota, could then label it as murder by the police when we all know it's not, and you haven't heard anything about that case because it's going to turn out like every other case. He took a lethal dose of fentanyl-laced meth. That's why he died. He was dying as we saw him on the video. Does it make what the officer did right? No. Does Sisnick dying? This isn't a big deal? No. Was the Capitol riot not a big deal? No. But when the media narrative is he was crushed in the head and bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher, that's Trump's fault and 74 million Americans who voted for him fault when it's basically based completely on a lie. That's a problem. One full month after Sissy's death, no autopsy has been released. For reference, autopsies take two to four hours to perform, and the rulings are available within 24 hours. Investigators are vexed by a lack of evidence that could prove someone caused his death. Authorities, authorities have reviewed video and photographs to show Sissy engaging with rioters amid the siege, but yet to identify a moment which in, when she suffered his fatal injuries, which means nobody bludgeoned him with a fire extinguisher. Ominously, no finding from D.C. medical examiner have been released. No announcements have been made by authorities about the ongoing process. The U.S. Capitol building is one of the most video-surveilled buildings on planet Earth, and yet no internal video footage has been released by federal authorities or have been promised to be made available. Unannounced to anyone except incidentally is that cystic memorial remains turned up in an urn instead of a coffin. Sisnick's body has been cremated. That means no further forensic analysis can be done to establish the cause of time of death. Why one would, must wonder what a family still searching for answers who, who has no autopsy result, no death certificate, and no medical report authorize a cremation. Did they? Narrative 2.0. Strategic ambiguity, ambiguity rhetorical conflation. With narrative 1.0 turning into a total mainstream media hoax, a bald-faced lie... The size and phrenology of Brian Seltzer's head, the globalist American empire media is transitioning to narrative 2.0. Strategic ambiguity with rhetorical conflation. Sisnick wasn't killed by a mega mob. Sisnick died after sustaining injuries while physically engaging with protesters per the Capitol Police. They're silently removing by and adding while and with, then reframing the entire clause in the passive test tense as 90% of readers conflate what happened and move on. But injured while physically engaging is like dying with COVID. Even if you died in a motorcycle crash, they count it 
It's a trick. But using the framing device, the mimetic energy of Narrative 1.0, the brazen lie, is preserved without readers hard forking to a more accurate narrative that describe what investigators really believe happened that day. Officials killed, fi- officials killed five people. But how exactly did they die? We explore this disturbing question in part two of this explosive investigative series. Stay tuned. Well, we don't need to because the Guardian already did it. Not our news. They don't want to put that shit out because if you actually heard it, it doesn't sound that good. We already know Cystic. Ashley Babit, 35, Babit. Babit, Babette, whatever, a 14-year-old, a 14-year Air Force veteran from San Diego was among a group of people who could have been attempting to break down the doors of the U.S. Senate chamber as a member shelter. Cameras captured the moment she was rushed out on a stretcher of being shot by Capitol Police officer. She died at the hospital. I really don't know why she decided to do this, her mother-in-law said. Just a day before the rally, Babbitt tweeted QAnon conspiracy called The Storm, in which the supporters believed Donald Trump would emerge to overthrow the executed corrupt political elites, and enemies. That's all we can get. She was disarmed. She wasn't armed. But she got shot in the face. Once again, if her color was different, or the riot, which were the right reasons, the preferred never-Trumper, corporate America, FBI, because we didn't go up and round up all these people. Remember, they give you that 10,000 number. Those are the people who resisted arrest and were all released and they never charged with anything. So nobody went and got the ringleaders of BLM. Nobody got the ringleaders of Antifa. We've ignored all that. Because, you know, the FBI was part of it. They're for it. They want to get rid of Trump. They know the political ramifications of it. It's great to have riots in the streets and blame Trump. It's what we did for a summer. Benjamin Phillips, 50, a computer programmer from Shaluki, Shaikil County, Pennsylvania. Phillips organized a caravan from Pennsylvania to the Capitol grounds for the plan of destruction. Once there, he had a stroke and died, although authorities have not confirmed what point during the attack. Kevin Greeson, native of rural Athens, Alabama. Greeson died of apparent heart attack at an unknown point during the event. His family confirmed in a statement that the history of high blood pressure in the midst of the excitement contributed to medical condition. Greeson posted racist diatribes online and associated with Proud Boys, a far-right group known for enacting political violence and racial terror. Despite the family insistence that he was not there to participate in violence or rioting, he did not condone such action. Greeson had posted popular conservative social platforms calling for supporters to load your guns and take the streets. Let's take this fucking country back. He posted to Parler. Like many of the white nationalists who participated, Greeson never specified for whom the country is being taken. We're glad he died. That's that's what we're saying. Rosen Bolin, 34, Kennesaw, Georgia, partly died of a medical emergency during the riot. Family members later told reporters Boylan had been crushed in the melee. Boylan, an avid Trump supporter, had a criminal history, including being charged with possession and distribution of heroin at least four other times in Georgia. Other past charges, including battery, obstruction of law enforcement, and trespassing. Do you notice that we, we don't see any of this for any of the people who blow shit up? We saw articles for... All the people that did serious shit during the BLM riots, we get articles about they just got caught up. 
when they tried to kill the officer in the car, they were just caught up. The lawyers, the good people. Remember, we've spent fucking four years, he said good people on both sides, and the media spent an entire summer, they're all good people. Even if they're looting, they're just redistributing. It's really good to redistribute goods. So, as all this shit's going on, none of this has been put out, but we get these theatrics, just a few, because I want to save the rest for the next podcast, from the media endems. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. In a speech spanning almost 11,000 words, yes, we did check. That was the one time, the only time President Trump used the word peaceful or any suggestion of nonviolence. The implication of the president's tweets, the rally and the speeches were clear. President Trump used the word fight or fighting 20 times, including telling the crowd they needed to fight like hell to save our democracy. We know how the crowd responded to Donald Trump's words and he knew how they responded to his speech. Here is the evidence of how the crowd reacted. don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. And there was only one fight left, and it was a mile up the road. Donald Trump, the President of the United States, ordered the crowd to march on Congress, and so the crowd marched. This is incredible, you heard him say. That's how President Trump ended his speech. I'd like to close with a very brief timeline of what was happening in parallel, alongside the President as he spoke on the 6th of January. A little after noon, President Trump began his speech with a fiery refusal to concede. He commanded the crowd to fight and march down Pennsylvania Avenue. And around 1220, some rally goers, some attendees began marching. By 12.30, as President Trump continued to incite his supporters, large segments of the rally crowd had amassed at the Capitol. At 12.53, as the President's speech was playing on cell phone broadcasts, the outermost barricade of the northwest side of the Capitol was breached. And Capitol Police were forced back to the steps of the Capitol. At 1.10, the President ended his speech with a final call to fight and a final order to march to the Capitol. At 1.45, the President's followers surged past Capitol Police shouting, this is a revolution. Just after 2.10, an hour after President Trump 
ended his speech, the insurrectionist mob overwhelmed Capitol security and made it inside the halls of Congress. Because the truth is, this attack never would have happened but for Donald Trump. And so they came, draped in Trump's flag, and used our flag, the American flag, to batter and to bludgeon. And at 2.30, I heard that terrifying banging on House chamber doors. For the first time in more than 200 years, the seat of our government was ransacked on our watch. I think the only question before the country is um, what will be done. This was a president who summoned a mob to kill his vice president. And we will rack that video and show it to you again in a moment. But whatever you think of Republicans and Democrats, the vice president of the United States life was in danger. And in a presentation so precise and so haunting, the rioters and the insurrectionists who went there to quote them, hang Mike Pence, were alarmingly close to him. I also want to talk to you, Claire, about something that we may have um, not understood. The Capitol Police were heroic in every way, and they were the victims of this insurrection as much as anybody else. Now, Preet, we know that this is a political trial. OK, we know that we know the jurors are not impartial. We know that Mitch McConnell said it. But do you think today may have made a difference when it kind of it really dawned on me and maybe on them? He really left you guys to die in there that he knew they were hunting you and he did not stop it. Did that come through? Yeah, well, I think it did very much so. And this issue that we've been talking about, it, it's kind of interesting that makes it a peculiar kind of trial and creates a conflict of interest of sorts because a lot of these, in fact, arguably all of the senators who were also jurors were victims or potential victims of the mob violence. You would never have it in a real trial. Philip Bump has great reporting in the Washington Post tonight about how about one half of those Senate Republicans themselves were saying and doing things completely in sync with what the president is being held accountable for. So it raises further questions of bias on their part. How can they be fair in sitting in judgment of Trump when essentially they were doing a lot of the same? Exactly. You have witnesses, victims, and accomplices as the jury. Then we have a Senate juror who's already calling for Trump's conviction. What does he think of the case? And what does he think of what it means if there is an acquittal? And if you start to feel things, you got to get help just like you would if it were anything else. Um, you know, injuries on the inside are same as injuries on the outside. And I don't want to traumatize or re-traumatize, but I do want to traumatize the people who are sitting as jurors uh, because there's too much of a rush here to dismiss this, to move past it because they have different political inclinations and worries. So you're in there and you know, as you look around the room, that some of your brothers and a few of your sisters on the right are really not family to you anymore. They're not paying attention, Senator. They don't give a damn. They've made up their mind of what to do here. And it's all about expediency, even though they know you got lucky 
all of you walking out there that and I really believe the House managers won't do it because it's too incendiary because this is all about votes. So you'll just piss these people off and make it more likely they vote against you. But I really do believe this is the question, Don, who needed to die? If they had gotten Pelosi, God forbid, if they had gotten Schiff, if they had gotten Pence, God forbid, would you vote to convict them? No. Who did they have to get? No. And I would be pointing. How about her? How about him? Would this have done it for you? You guys eat lunch a lot together. What if he died? Yeah. And I really think that's where we are right now. Well, I, 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 said, I, I said last night what I, what I believe. As I've been telling you forever, there are a lot of people in this country who are afraid of what is happening. They're afraid of the diversity in, in this country. But they'll vote for him anyway. They're going to, but maybe. But he has, he was the most vocal in all of the things that they're afraid of. And so they, found, they see themselves in him with that particular part. So they prioritize that part over the discrimination of other people, over all of the crazy rhetoric that he did. That's what they, that's what they prioritize. And so they want to continue with that America and, and in an America where you can be a white supremacist, where you can wear a, a Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt. Where you can do but run roughshod over like the Constitution. That, who would they ever vote because, for except someone on that side of the aisle who's no, pitching them that virulence? No, 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 they're not because those because they, they look at those people as rhinos. And because this was the person who stood up for them the most in that horrible way, the worst part yeah, of their I get personality. It. He was the worst being, of the worst. That's I'm with it. you. That's why. And up next, we've seen an alarming increase in violence directed at Asian Americans since the start of the pandemic. You don't suppose the former president repeatedly calling it, quote, the China virus had anything to do with that, do you? And under the disgrace, now twice impeached former president, that anger was fostered, fueled and misdirected. Trump refused to wear a mask and flaunted it. He resisted locking down the country the way lots of other countries' leaders did successfully. And then our racist in chief sought to redirect the anger that people were experiencing because of his own weak response to the pandemic onto someone else. Anti-Asian racism is not new in this country. In the 19th century, similar xenophobic sentiments led to the passage of the Chinese Exclusion Act, barring immigration based solely on race. And I'll go to you first, um, I guess, Congressman. How much can we connect the rash of violence against Asian Americans to the previous president's rhetoric about the coronavirus? Yeah, there's no doubt that there's a connection there. And that one is needs to be something that is brought out. Now, with the Trump administration, that was exacerbated because of things like, you noted, the China, uh, the China, Chinese flu or the China virus, right? That exacerbated the already underlying um, uh, xenophobia and racism against Asians. It comes from China. It's not racist at all. No, not at all. It comes from China. That's why comes from China. I want to be accurate. Well, uh, Brittany, you know, it, it, it is interesting to me. They say they're going to play some Democrats and, and some of the uh, uh, sporadic uh, violence that happened uh, last year. Uh, uh, and, and, and they are planning, they're reportedly using that for their defense. Uh, I've been involved in marches and demonstrations for years, all the way up till now. You've been involved for the last several years. Uh, and uh, but I don't think any of us has ever been accused of trying to have an insurrection or have called on violence. Even if some violence happened days away from us, 
where you directly uh, could could even try to conjure this up. Let's know members of, of, of Congress. Uh, so, I mean, how do they think this is going to work? No one called for anyone to stop the certification of an election, which is a coup d'etat by definition. That's right. What we've called for and what we've consistently been calling for is the ability to live, breathe, rest, raise our children, raise our families and make a living in peace like all Americans, like all people deserve to be able to do. That's very different from complaining because you, the election doesn't go your way and then attempting, like you said, a coup on the United States Capitol. Ninety three percent of those uh, uh, protests from over the summer were without incident. And we know much of the 7% was actually created by many of the same kinds of white supremacists that marched on the Capitol on January the 6th. So instead of worrying about a peaceful, nonviolent movement that will continue to push for our rights, Congress should be worried about passing a bill for $2,000 monthly survival checks for the American people. They should be worried about ending a pandemic that has killed nearly a half a million people in a year starting today. Uh, we should make sure that they are holding insurrectionists accountable and that they are actually setting a precedent so that this cannot happen again. That requires continuing to impeach and convict Donald J. Trump. And it also requires expelling the 147 Republicans who voted to overturn the voice of the American people. That is what Congress needs to concern itself with. And that's what the American people will expect of them. <clears throat> All right, activist extraordinaire Brittany Packnick uh, Cunningham. And our friend Elise Jordan, thank you both for being You know, I remember seeing you in the lobby of a hotel in Egypt in the midst of the revolution. And it was a really scary day. I was, I was, I've seen a lot and I was very scared that day. Um, you've been to a lot of civil wars. Uh, you know, I was in Rwanda in the genocide briefly. I was in Bosnia. We, you know, we're in Iraq, Afghanistan. You've been around the world. You've seen a lot. I hear people talking about civil war in America as if, they know what they're talking about, as if they know what that looks like. And I, unless you've seen it up close, I mean, it is a horrible, horrible thing. I, I am so upset when I hear these people at rallies, Trump rallies, talking about civil war as if it's some sort of a cleansing. You know, part of it, I think, just based on, on what you were just saying, I, it comes to mind the idea of otherizing people is something I think we saw a lot of over the last four years. I mean, it's something we've seen a lot over the last decades. But it's so easy to otherize people, to make people other than, other than American, other than patriotic, other than, than human, you know, and we've seen it in Bosnia, we've seen it in Rwanda, where radio was telling people that, you know, Hutus were telling the radio listeners that Tutsi were cockroaches, for, you know, getting them ginned up for genocide. Um, and you see it in, in these videos where people who claim they are patriots are in the face of a police officer calling him, uh, you know, as we're seeing it right there. And, and you know, gouging out the eye of one, you know, squeezing one in, you know, suffocating one in a doorway. And I think that's why when you see a congressman on the floor uh, in tears uh, during his presentation, while maybe some folks on the right might mock him, if you're in that institution, there is what you said, Joe, it, it, there's such a beauty about it. I would argue it, it might be the most beautiful building in the world in terms of being a citadel for freedom and democracy. And when you spend time in there, then to see it trash to see uh, really literally acts of treason against the institution, the buildings, the walls, the people, the artwork, the monuments. Uh, and that's why it's got to be so hard to be a Republican senator 
a Republican congressman and sit there and know that that happened, know that desecration took place, know that murder took place in that building, and yet feel like I just got to move on. I just got to move on. So I, I, you know, trust in everything is down, not because Donald Trump made people not trust things. Trust and everything is down because of what you just saw. The Capitol was horrible. I'm not saying it wasn't horrible. But you condoned, supported, and financed. I mean, here's the vice president. If you had to be stuck in an elevator with either President Trump, Mike Pence, or Jeff Sessions, who would it be? Does one of us have to come out alive? Is that incitement? Should be she be impeached for that? When you cloak everything that is factual as disinformation, and we've had four years of disinformation about a president who I don't support, but I'm just calling balls and strikes. That's the podcast. It's about media. It may seem like I'm really anti-damn, but it, hey, they get away with it because they can. The Republicans will get away with this crazy shit if they could, but they don't have a media source that allows them to lie. This entire montage was okay for four years. The Speaker of the House, the enemies within the House, I don't know why people aren't uprising, ripping up the fucking State of the Union speech. That's the Vice President. I want to kill him. Maxine Waters being able to hedge away with PolitiFact help on our next podcast that she really didn't say it. Our eyes and our ears see things. You can't tell us what we're seeing is something else because you're more educated or better than us or because we're somehow suspect or less than because we voted for a president that you don't like. We only voted for that president, most of us, Because you didn't give us a choice. How do you vote for Hillary? How do you vote for Biden? And then we go into an election season already being prepped that he was going to steal it. And four years of he stole it. And then a group of people, including yours truly, goes, 81 million is a lot of votes. They changed 80 voting laws. How was that legal? And then you read our first segment time where they say, hey, yeah, we rigged it. You know what Google did because if you followed the show, we had the video from 16 saying they were going to do it. And then they did it and they're still suppressing things. Just looking up Officer Spitnik or Stesnik or whatever his name is. And I don't want to belittle him because he's dead and it's horrible. All you could get was the propaganda. Then you get it. I couldn't even get on a Google search that Revolver article. And it's the only article out there that researched what really happened. The New York Times purposely went with the lie. But yet my never Trump friends, conservative friends and liberals, that's the gospel. The New York Times says it's a gospel. But if you follow this show, 
we played Nancy Pelosi saying, yeah, you just float it out there, the media run with it, and then you can use it as fodder for investigations. That's what they do because they can get away with it because they're Democrats. And we investigate lies. Russia, lie, proven by intel. She lied. They ran with it. It was a lie. Everything about that, from wiretapping to everything, has been a lie. It's all a lie. And then you find out they really do it. But we're all crazy. And then just the sheer enunciation of the Capitol riot is horrible. But we had a summer, 2,000 officers. I was a third less saying 600. That was the last count. But we don't have a count. 36 dead. The only count we can get on how many people were killed is 25 from the Guardian. Because our papers aren't going to do it. They were still pushing mostly peaceful. And you find out the Capitol riot, four people died of natural causes. And the entire shtick on how the officer died is a complete lie. Propagated by the media so that the Democrats could use it as fodder to label 74 million people as insurrectionists. Even the realization there wasn't a lot of damage. Even the realization they were never armed. I didn't know that. I was told they were armed. They were armed with a fire extinguisher that didn't exist. Wow. You're kidding me. Really? So yeah. Yeah, that's some shocking shit. And that's why I jumped in the booth and did two-subject podcast. Because if you think that's okay, you think it's okay to rig an election and to lie about a riot for political means to get rid of somebody you don't like, it's not about Trump. None of this is about Trump. It's about anybody from the outside of the establishment trying to be president of the United States. I don't give a fuck who they are. Look what they did to Bernie. How did Bernie lose twice? You didn't see Biden people on Twitter. You saw Bernie, and twice they took it away from him. You know why? Because he's an outsider. He's a socialist. They don't want him either. They're trying to cancel him. And it's not about supporting Trump. His speech was ill-advised. Some of his statements were hyperbolic after the election. But other than tenor and town and wordage, what's different than what Hillary is still doing four years later? I'm asking. She's still saying she was ripped off. That the election was rigged. And what's worse... A couple hundred people with Antifon, BLM mixed in them, attacked the Capitol. Or a summer of four billion of damage. What's worst? Four pe- four, a couple hundred people attacking the Capitol. Or the Democrats taking it and making it 9-11 and Pearl Harbor. 
What's worse, a media is saying that entire summer of violence is peaceful and lying about the Capitol riot with armed and bludgeoned and a fire extinguisher which doesn't exist. If an officer was killed and his body was cremated, no, let me say it right. If George Floyd's body would have been cremated a couple days after he fucking died, what would have been the uproar on that? They didn't have to cremate the body. They just lied about the autopsy and made a new one up. And that started all of this. What's worse, a couple hundred people attacking the Capitol or every shooting event for a year being an utter lie, including Jacob Blake, to propagate more violence so Democrats can win an election? And what's worse, Donald Trump tweeting the erection, the erection here, I'm doing a Schumer, the election was rigged or four years of the election was rigged. We're going to get rid of the Electoral College. We're going to make sure no Republicans ever president again. We're going to rig an election. Time Magazine article. Which one's worse? Your answer invariably will be on whether you hate Donald Trump more than you love free press, facts, and truth. Because the most shocking thing that will come out of four years of Trump isn't that the left hates you. Because they do. It's how many people will go along with the press that is lying every time they push record. Every time it's a lie. Every fucking thing we get fed to us is through the filter of progressive politics and how it can hurt or help Democrats. That's every media source except Fox. If these two segments didn't shock you just for a second and go, Jesus fucking Christ, I don't know what to say to you. We will never have a truly free economy, a free country, free elections with this kind of press. Because you will always only get one side. Of eight years of Obama, four years of Trump, and the first month of Biden hasn't taught you anything. They're not journalists. They're activists. So, let's do a moment of zen before we close the show.
And this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please share this with family and friends. Go to foppodcast.com for audio and video. If you're purist, go to SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, Pocket Cast, yada, yada. Make sure you check out the Twitter account of Fop Tony Reed. Tune in on the 13th. We're going to go with the Saturday podcast before the snow dumps on a Sunday. For more exciting stuff, we'll do impeachment day two, a lot of cancel culture and some hate. It'll be some good shit. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs. And as always, thanks for listening.